Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snack Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. You're listening to the Revenge of the Birds podcast, part of the SB Nation Podcast Network. Hosted by Blake Murphy 7, all about your Arizona Cardinals. All right, and welcome in. It's the Revenge of the Birds podcast. I'm your host, Blake Murphy 7. And let's talk through at least, we got a little bit of recapping to do. Talk about the Vikings game briefly. Uh, of course, another loss for the Arizona Cardinals. And an unfortunate loss as it sinks their season two, three, and five. A chance to get back to 500. And ultimately, it was one of those games that you feel like is maybe less a missed opportunity from others. But all the same, still ends up putting the Cardinals in a pretty tough pickle heading into the upcoming Seahawks game. Talk a bit about the Patrick Peterson, some brief comments on that as well as a little bit about the obvious move they made with Rodney, uh, Robbie Anderson, I should say, and some other moves they've made as well. Uh, but first, let's talk at least and see, with the Cardinals playing the Vikings, this was essentially a matchup of the second healthiest team versus the healthiest team. <laughs> I should say the um, most injured team in the NFL. And goodness, that's uh, Cardinals end up going in at least to the game, are able to make it pretty close by the half, still end up down with a score, Kirk Cousins with a rushing touchdown. The narrative of the season has not changed. The Cardinals getting off to a slow start, giving up an opening drive touchdown. You ultimately wonder how much of the scripted defensive plays have the Cardinals really gotten off to and how much of their scripted offensive plays have been different. I know from some comments that have been around, I'll have to watch some more film to see, but it seems very much like this year's Cardinals opening drive and the scripted plays, whether it's offense or defense, feels like the Cardinals are looking at teams' previous opponents and finding things that work for them, maybe trying to find ways they can expose it. And it seems the teams have caught on to that relatively quickly or have been, for one way or another, Arizona's been predictable to open, and teams have taken advantage of that. Cardinals at least are able to make it a game, and should say at least they actually at one point I believe had taken the lead over the Vikings only to uh, see those terrible turnovers come back up again so that was one of the things I think you can talk about with the overall game but essentially the Cardinals are not able to run the ball whatsoever Kyler Murray has about 30 or so rushing yards Vikings have 173 you really feel like the narrative of this Cardinal season comes down to ultimately the team kind of not necessarily shooting themselves in the foot I would say that was something I think they did do this game 
But it comes down to this team has been beat up. They've been injured enough. And they ultimately have not been good enough, whether that's through depth, whether that's through coaching and adjustments. They simply were not able to stop the Vikings. The narrative I think you think of in the seasons when the Cardinals have had a chance, when they've either been there late, either there's been some sort of mistake or a turnover, something that's gotten in the way of the Cardinals being able to get in front of it. In some cases, perhaps they've just been outclassed by some of the larger opponents like the Chiefs in Week 1. But since then, they've had shots. They've had opportunities. They were in the lead in this game. And what it really came down to was the turnovers. When you have three turnovers, it's very difficult to win a game. This is the second time the Cardinals have had three turnovers in the game against an NFC West opponent and still had a chance at the end of the game to go out and win it, or at least go out and tie it. Now, they went for two at one point in the game. Maybe if they kick the field goal and all of a sudden you're down 30, I think 27, 34, oh, then, then you have a chance to at least tie the game more likely versus going for two. But you end up seeing at least the issues pop up, a Dorch fumble, a Kyler Murray interception deep in the middle. We'll talk a bit about him here. And also late game, two crucial errors, one being the pass thrown to Zach Ertz, whether that was Ertz's route Murray throwing a bit behind him. Either way, neither was on the same page. Vikings are sitting there and pick the ball off. Not a good throw, not a good route, whatever you want to call it. But I think the thing of the season comes down to the Cardinals are on third down. They're in the red zone. They have a chance to essentially score a touchdown and take the lead. And what do they do? Well, two issues. One is... The false snap by Billy Price. And for one reason or another, the situational football that Arizona has been has been problematic. And this reminds me a lot. Like I said, this season is a lot like the 2019 Cardinals where Cliff and the Cards get into the red zone. Cliff calls a timeout as they stop the Niners on fourth down. And then suddenly they just run a different play trick. I think it was either Isaiah Simmons or Jordan Hicks. And go ahead and score. The situational football, those little minute details, are difficult because at the NFL level, there's so many things that can go on in a game. And when you're a team like Arizona that isn't really as talented as teams we've seen in this desert in the past, or talented as other teams, that margin for error becomes very slim. And we saw that down the stretch, and some of this, I think, does fall onto questions that will continue about the coaching staff. I think the second error that happened was you look at the Cardinals, you know, they're able to have, I think at least they kick that field goal. Vikings go down and essentially are able to put up another touchdown on the board. So you're like, all right, this game is over. And then they miss the extra point, which essentially is the only thing that gives the Cardinals a chance at the end of the game. Two sacks of Kyler Murray end it. But it really goes to show that when the... There's times this team gets close. Cardinals at least are able to force the Vikings to a three and out, go down and seem about to score, kick a field goal instead, instead of being able to, you know, go ahead and take a lead in the game while you are at, um, what was that there? This is 23 points, take a lead, get up to, I think it was 29 points, take a lead over the Vikings by two points. Oh, gosh, they just aren't able to do it. And at the end of the game, when they need to stop, they just aren't able to do it. And these late game scenarios, obviously, I think one of the other mistakes that I think was kind of the other drive killer were 
while the Vikings at Area Smith had three sacks of Kyler Murray, you got to see him use his legs, go for some pickups of yards. It felt a lot like, and I had someone text me, the Raiders game, where the Cardinals were up against the wall. They had to essentially complete every fourth down, get every two-point conversion just to have a shot in the game. And it seemed like there was a chance they could do it. The Vikings needed to miss an extra point. They did. Cardinals needed to pick up yards. They moved downfield, and Eno Benjamin uses a blindside block. Unfortunately, sometimes it's just it's a case where it's legal in college. But in the NFL, they've been doing away with that specifically because of head trauma, other injuries. They take on a 15-yard penalty for the personal foul, a nice Kyler Murray scramble, and gain is wiped out. Cardinals end up behind the sticks. And when you're in those third and long situations where you're forced to pass, you know what happens. The defense is able to rush, and Arizona essentially is unable to take care of any sort of Hail Mary. The timeouts that they had used up essentially kept them uh, from being able to use many down the stretch. And the team falls to 3-5. and five. And this will be something we'll have to watch to see what actually goes on with this Cardinals coaching staff because you feel like at this point there's two problems with this team. Now you can look and talk about how the defense has overachieved up to this point. Well, overachieving could get you so far. The problem is, is that ultimately at some point there's a difference between overachieving and achieving. And overachieving means that you get to have the Cardinals narrative of the season, which is that they've been consistently inconsistent, I would say. They've been able to show great times of putting up offense in the second half. They just can't do it in the first. They're able to make plays and make turnovers uh, happen on defense, but then they also can make turnovers happen or use poor, <laughs> uh, poorly timed mistakes on offense as well. And last year, I think with the biggest difference we saw with Arizona was really ultimately, and this is something people may not like as much, I don't think it reflected on the coaching. I think it reflected overall on the talent of the team. And you say, where have the Cardinals been at their weakest? And it's pretty much they've been weakest at the receiver spot. When you talk about looking at how A.J. Green, I believe gets 23 snaps or something, 23, 30 snaps, does nothing with it. New report comes out this week. He's apparently one of the worst separating receivers in the NFL. It's very, very clear that Cardinals should probably have just not brought him back this last season. They didn't seem to have other options. The injury to Antoine Wesley kind of forced their hand here a bit. And then the Hollywood Brown injury. The fact we have to wait for another few weeks. And by the time that we get Brown back, we don't know if the Cardinals season will continue or not. Uh, being able to have that second threat was something that we've seen at least the Cardinals get against this Vikings game. We haven't seen it be able to affect their deep passing. Cardinals do make a trade, at least, trading some late picks for Robbie Anderson. The idea that I think behind this is whether or not this was a jump the gun too soon, thought Hollywood Brown was out, needed to get another player in there. The ultimate goal of that trade should be simply adding someone who's got maybe just a little bit more juice, a little bit more to prove than A.J. Green, who can play that same role. The Z spot, line up on the right-hand side of the field run deep routes, even if it's a distraction, such as we've seen in years past with a guy like Demir Bird until he was able to get adjusted, being able to at least run a few of those plays to just get DeAndre Hopkins just a little bit of space deep so the safety has to make a choice. Man, you just feel like Arizona got in a spot where while it's a decent trade, the fact that they have not been able to really f use Anderson and Kingsbury said they'll have to try to force him the ball. 
you saw that the Cardinals were able to take advantage of the slot with getting the ball to Rondale Moore, and that was kind of the bread and butter. What I thought was interesting was how the Cardinals essentially decided to attack with Rondale Moore in the slot and feature DeAndre Hopkins on the left side against Cameron Dantzler. To me, it was an interesting choice, and I don't think that it was the wrong one. You take a look at Arizona's production. Patrick Peterson, you put A.J. Green on the right side. He's been having a great season. That we can give to him. You see the Cardinals' passing attack just be able to go off, but when their offensive line is not able to run the football effectively, you've seen that Arizona at least ends up having to throw the ball more, and what happens when you throw the ball a lot in the NFL is that it's really hard to be able to just have nothing but passing yards and not have a turnover or two, because teams are just so good these days. Schemes are good, and the Vikings were a team that coming in, we said this is kind of the narrative of the Vikings, is they've had maybe an unsustainable, but ultimately a team identity in forcing turnovers, whether it's through fumbles, whether it's through interceptions. That's why they're a 6-1 and one football team. The other narrative was simply the Vikings getting up to an early lead. We saw that happen at least in the first half. Maybe not as much a lead as many expected. And then letting teams get back into the game as we saw in that third quarter. The Vikings had had one of the worst third quarters uh, of any team in the NFL this season. We're one of the better first half teams. Cardinals were a great second half team. And we kind of got to see the narrative flipped a little bit. The Vikings came out, were able to get an interception of Kyler Murray, were able to score. The Cardinals in the fourth quarter were not able to punch it in. And you feel like at least now that the lost opportunity, maybe it's not a game like the Vikings, like, you know, they were close. Maybe they had a shot at it. But you feel like the lost opportunity is not to the team that gave up 34 points. It's on the other sides of the ball where the offense at least seems to have wanted to be the guys carrying the bulk for the team, and they've not been able to ultimately carry the load. And it's gotten better. The Cardinals putting up 26 points. You got to see, of course, obviously, the likes of uh, an interception that was um, taken away, I think, with the ball from the Vikings. I think it should say strip sack fumble by Isaiah Simmons, who credit to what you can say with the Cardinals. The young talent that we've complained about not stepping up has stepped up in a great way this season. Byron Murphy and Zach Allen playing well. The 2019 class looks a lot better. Rashard Lawrence had been playing well, but as injured as often as he is, there's been a lot of difficulties there in being able to just have another defensive lineman up front. J.J. Watt moving to the defensive end spot, rushing off of the edge, has been a nice uh, feature to have back this year. And, of course, Byron Murphy being able to play a great role. The biggest thing with the Cardinals was they weren't able to necessarily cap the Vikings' passing game. They weren't necessarily able to cap the Vikings' rushing game. But Alvin Cook having almost 100 yards in the first half showed that when the Vikings came out and scripted those plays, they knew how to attack Arizona's defense. And the defense wasn't as ready for it as maybe they should have been. Fortunately, they were able to get back into it. But at the end of the day, the Cardinals end up being a team that gets to the nine-yard line and needed 10 yards. And that's been, I think, a big story this season. For one reason or another, we had a feeling how this game would go. We predicted it at least with the last time around the Revenge of the Birds podcast of this is a Vikings team that starts fast, a Cardinals team that finishes fast, and a Vikings team that holds on while the Cardinals have just not been able to put it away since the miraculous win against the Raiders. 
So really, then this team looks like a team that played a beat-up Saints team on Thursday night, played a Panthers team that, you know, if they had P.J. Walker back there, maybe it's a slightly different story. Maybe some of the motivation they've been able to have through Steve Wilkes and just moving on from the likes of a Baker Mayfield who looks like he's not able to function as much more than a backup in this current NFL. And so it's now rough sledding for the cards moving forward. Are they completely out of it? No. But the lack of moves at the trade deadline, the fact that they went out and signed another linebacker specifically because you look at how Ben Neiman played against the Vikings, they were just kind of moving him around, pushing him downfield. The game comes down to how well you do in the trenches. And that's where I think the Cardinals have really, really missed Rodney Hudson because I think this was brought up on the Rise Up Sea Red podcast by Jess Root. I, I don't know if I can phrase it better, but it's kind of the same thing to say as Hudson, when you look at last year, he had been an Iron Man in the NFL. He had played snap after snap, hadn't missed a start, gets to 2021, and suddenly he's hurt. He's missing games. We've said that about DeAndre Hopkins as well. Hey, Hopkins doesn't miss games, doesn't miss time, and then suddenly he's gone for the rest of the season after re-aggravating an injury, and then after a suspension for six games, misses essentially an entire calendar year of production. Now, that being said, he has since gone on to put up 100 plus yards, I think 150 yards against this Vikings team. And oh my goodness, he's on pace for 1400 yards. He's probably at least going to, if this Cardinals team for the next few weeks is able to keep up this pace before Hollywood Brown gets back, he may be able to still hit a thousand yards on the season. Quite impressive. But with Hudson, the Cardinals, I think it came down to, and I mentioned this at least to the Cardinals had a choice to make on draft night. And the Ravens also had a choice to make on draft night because the Cardinals ultimately were not aware, I think, of Rodney Hudson's retirement or I think was somewhat aware that something was going on. And I think a lot of it was the retirement issues and the threat of that was maybe his health. And you look at him missing the rest of the season last year, his knee being a big part of that. This year, it seems like it's a knee injury. So it seems like very much that he may just have a bum knee and is playing out his last year before he goes to retire. He's a new dad, obviously. Uh, that was one of the storylines before the season. And obviously, you don't want to necessarily have lingering, lasting injuries. There is a health-life balance in the NFL of why guys don't play until they're 40, 45 years old like a Tom Brady. It's because you get destroyed in that league. And it does feel like that's kind of been the case of what's happened, unfortunately, with Rodney to that point. The hard part with Arizona was they had chances to try to find different backups. It seems very clear that they weren't going to go after um, the Browns starting center, who did retire, at least in this season. We know that there were rumors and reports that they were looking at a center in Cam Jurgens. He ends up not <laughs> being drafted by the Cardinals, goes a few picks earlier to the Eagles. So you have a 2022 draft that stacks out this way where there's choices to make. The Ravens are in need of trying to find a defensive playmaker such as a Kyle Hamilton. I'd also wanted to see about upgrading their center position, just like Arizona. The Cardinals also, however, wanted another wide receiver, and the Vikings had just drafted Rashad Bateman in the first round a year before. I liked Rashad Bateman a lot. The biggest question, of course, in him was health. And sometimes you get a guy who has that size, that speed, the profile, and the production. You're fine taking a shot on health. It's actually backfired, uh, not just for the Ravens, but for the Cardinals as well, where three of the four players, at least you can look at, between those teams that exchanged picks or could have been selected, 
have been hurt. So let's see. Let's take a look at that. The alternate universe would be the Cardinals stay put. They draft, of course, obviously, um, Tyler Linderbaum, who I think would have been the pick for the Cardinals if just because of the Rodney Hudson issue. The Ravens instead take him and are set at Stutter. They are good to go. But Ravens' issue has been at wide receiver. <laughs> That's kind of ironic because the Cardinals... When they do get Hollywood Brown back, they are going to have a plethora of wide receivers. They are going to have at least five or six receivers. Now, looking back at the second round, there's a bunch of receivers that came off the board. And this is perhaps the area, I think, where the Cardinals would have probably had to trade up. And that was the thing I think that was the decision to make here for Arizona. Because you look at the board right before they go and you see it go this way. Tyquan Thornton, wide receiver, goes to the Patriots. Cam Jurgens, center, goes to the Eagles, backing up Jason Kelsey. He's not even playing this year. George Pickens, he's in an impressive set of plays thus far, kind of filling that role opposite of what, you know, that Andre Green was kind of doing last year, just going downfield, making spectacular catches. Alec Pierce, same type of guy. Sky Moore has not been as impressive. A guy who runs that 4-3 speed, but would have probably had to be more of a slot type of player. That's one of the moves I don't know if Arizona would have made, but they select Trey McBride, who had another penalty on Sunday. Unfortunately, has just seemed to keep having issues with being able to um, stay clean in his blocking. I think that it's a spot of where tight ends sometimes take time. I think you'll look at this year and see this probably should have been a year where McBride was selected in part because you can tell that Max Williams has not been either healthy or good enough to play for the Cardinals on Sunday. He's been essentially a practice squad guy for the most part. And I think that that long-term, there may be upsides. Of course, the team could have simply just rolled with Zach Ertz and maybe gotten by with a tight end for a veteran somewhere else. But I think that was the choice where Arizona could have probably decided to say, we're going to take Linderbaum, get the standard out center, so we know that our quarterback is protected for the future. Instead, they kind of decided to do the Steve Kime method, trot out a couple veterans, convince a few guys to come back, Bring back a Justin Pugh about to retire. Pay him enough money to make sure he returns. Bring back the likes of a Rodney Hudson. And Arizona now has reached a spot where you hope that Hudson will come back, but really he's been out for about five or so weeks now. Did not go on to IR. There's only so many players, of course, you can bring back from IR. And it really has turned into a spot where the Cardinals, I think at this point, you've got a lot of questions to ask about the team areas in the future and part of that ultimately i think is looking at what i would say is the good the bad and the ugly and that has to do with both the coaching staff and the front office and i think a lot of that is not maybe necessarily due to maybe even michael bidwell's preferences but due to a lot of the pressure and expectations for this team now they've not been able to live up to them so let's go over the good the good in my opinion has been that while we have seen issues with the Cardinals, we have not seen this be a bad team. I think you look at the Steve Wilkes Cardinals era and how that introduction introduction period where he was the last coach hired. No other teams were looking to hire Steve Wilkes. Arizona was the last to choose and select. Wasn't anyone else they beat out for that position. End of the year, Patrick Peterson's raving about how, oh, Steve Wilkes is selling me on this defense to get picks. Oh, Chandler Jones is selling him on getting on ball more. Not going to have to drop into coverage. Well, Steve Wilkes had sold the Cardinals a lot of things. And ultimately, 
when Steve Kime went out, Wilkes seemed to remake the Cardinals into an image of the Carolina Panthers defense, despite running more of a Cardinals-Steelers type of defense. Yeah. It did not turn out the way that people liked as well as Wilkes was not really a well-received coach by many people. Sure, he put up a hurdle in the midst of the locker room to be able to say, hey, this is the hurdle we have to get through, that cheesy coach stuff. Some people buy into it. Others choose to not to. Uh, there were definitely, I know, reports that when players would wear the wrong shoes, Wilkes would point it out to them, tell them to change shoes, and then find the players wanting to seek that type of a disciplined approach. When it comes to discipline, though, there's a difference between trying to put discipline on the field and just ultimately being a little bit harsh. There's two types of ways you can do it. You can have discipline, but like and enjoy and love your players. Bruce Arians' method. And there's kind of then more of the player's coach method where maybe you're a little bit of a buddy, but you still have enough firmness that you're able to take care of things with the team versus just being a bro coach. You have to ultimately be able to take care of different methods. Sometimes it's behind closed doors. Sometimes it's in public. Great example, Cliff Kingsbury benching, Dan, uh, I should say Matt Amendola, being able to see other different talks or cuts that have taken place. A lot of those, I think at least, is that players will ultimately then be treated like adults. Either you are a coach who pushes the players with discipline or you respect them and hold them to a high standard. And I think that those are the two methods of coaching that work in the NFL. I think that the uh, the coaches basically not able to command the respect of the players and the coach who tries too hard to control the players. Those are the coaching types that don't really seem to work out in the long run. So the question is then, are the Cardinals bad in that garden? I think no. I think that they're good. I think that we have seen enough from the likes of Cliff Kingsbury and Steve uh Kime, as far as being at least on the same page, that you don't feel like the Cardinals are off track. You don't feel like they are, like I should say, maybe severely off track, if I may amend myself. That's, I think, the good, is that you can see talent on the team. You can see offensive production. You can see that Vance Joseph and the defense, whether through scheme or by seeing guys develop and progress, we see things in this Cardinals team that show they're probably not a bad team, but they're definitely, at least for the most part, an average team that has not had all of their talent healthy. Let's move ahead to the bad. And here's where I think there's been the bad. And the bad so far, I would say, has been the injuries. The injuries have really shown the lack of depth on this Cardinals team. It's shown overall how top-heavy they've been talent-wise, where if you do lose a Hollywood Brown, uh, you really understand that you don't have a true wide receiver two who could be a wide receiver one. You think of the Cardinals, Anquan Bolden, Larry Fitzgerald. You think of during the days where it was Fitz and Michael Floyd. You can even add, say, hey, neither of those guys were necessarily in their primes or a alpha receiver like you saw Fitzgerald and Bolden was. But with adding John Brown in the mix, they were able to have a stellar group of receivers. You don't see that now with in the post-John Brown days, it took Arizona having to invest multiple second-round picks, trading for DeAndre Hopkins and paying him, as well as spending another second on Rondale Moore to ensure that they had a slot receiver after Christian Kirk left. And then they still have to trade a first for Hollywood Brown this year just to be able to make sure because of whether it's the Hopkins suspension or 
being able to actually have another receiving threat as a team. That has been one of the places, at least, where Arizona has simply just not been well enough in the draft or hasn't been quite on the same page as far as with the coach or with the talent level of the players. And that, I think, has been one of the spots that we've seen this year is where what Arizona's approach was, and I think ultimately, at the end of the day, was a bad approach, was they're going to run it back. 2021 came down to injuries, and that was the reason why the Cardinals started off 7-0 and and finished at 11-7. and The problem, of course, is, is that you can see how ultimately injuries can be kind of fluky. The teams that have had rookies play and have done well have teams like the Seattle Seahawks who lost their starting running back, and yet it didn't matter because they had talent in a guy like Kenneth Walker who was able to come on strong. Cardinals, what do they do? Well, when James Conner goes out, okay, cool, that's fine. We've got Darrell Williams. Darrell Williams goes out. All right, well, I guess it's going to be back down to the Eno Benjamin show. Good week against the Saints. Not the best week against the Vikings. And I think that's where the team ultimately were. The build that's come up with this has really come down to where it's probably not been the best build as far as looking at the tooling for the offensive line for the future or the defensive line. And as a result, what you can see that is that when teams struggle with their offensive line and they struggle with their running backs, you really end up seeing it have a huge impact on their ability because then they turn into a pass-heavy team that's throwing interceptions, throwing balls to the other team, that's under pressure a lot. And I think that there's no better place to look at that year than both the Cardinals or the Los Angeles Rams, who are almost in a weird way mirror images of each other, currently with DeAndre Hopkins playing the role of Cooper Cup and Kyler Murray playing the role of Matthew Stafford. You know, sure, he hasn't looked as bad as Stafford has at times, but the legs and the mobility and some of those game situations, you still are looking at losses, and that's what I think leads to the ugly. And the ugly, at least, is there's a lot of questions that people have had, at least, about is the coaching staff and is the front office and with Kyler Murray, none of them have lived up to the expectations that were placed on them. Definitely Cliff has had issues with play calling and play management, something that has resurfaced this year and even still is present, I should say, during that 7-0 and no stretch. Steve Kime, at least in his tenure, probably costing Arizona a game, keeping a kicker on the roster, and ultimately at the end of the day, just not being able to find offensive line talent to be able to bring in, whether it be through the draft, whether it be there, everyone has seemed to have gotten hurt at the interior offensive line position. And this is a guy who was an interior offensive line player. This is a guy who at least should know the position best, ends up forced into a corner where they invest into trading a third round pick and paying a player and are not able to find any sort of a suitable backup until they get Billy Price in. And even at that point, he's still a backup and is consistently inconsistent. That leads us all to Kyler Murray, who also I think many people have felt let down by this year because it seemed like that the dude is needed to throw the ball to Hopkins, run with his legs, and there have been enough turnovers. There have been enough, at least, with the decisions. But the ultimate thing to look at, I think, as far as the ugly, has been the regression. When your quarterback, at least, is gone in and starts off playing well, playing efficient, and finishes with about 24 touchdowns to 13 to 15 interceptions, that ends up showing you, at least, that when you go each year in the NFL, you want to make sure that you can at least see, if not progress, 
you want to at least see that they're capable of being able to not necessarily drop off at a far level. And the Cardinals this year, you can see Kyler Murray currently with eight games played on the season. He's on pace for about 4,000 yards passing, but only about 20 touchdowns and 12 interceptions. And what does that look like? All right, well, let's take a look at the last couple of years. Cardinals, at least overall, as far as Kyler Murray's career has gone, he has had 20... I should say at least, excuse me here. He's had that type of passing setup once. And it was in his rookie year. If you look back at the Cardinals, look at Kyler Murray and his career statistics. You're going to very much notice in his career that seems to have fluctuated somewhat based off of the talent that he's had. In his career, you look at 2019, 20 touchdowns, 12 interceptions, 2020, Kyler has 26 touchdowns to 12 interceptions. However, there was notable improvement from 2019 to 2020. Murray took uh, probably about half of the sacks that he took his rookie year. He got much, much better. His yards per attempt climbed to 7.1. Essentially, he's threatening the teams deeper. 2020 was a landmark year as far as showing that he was going to be a capable um, quarterback in the league. However, the late game stretch showed that, hey, he can sure be thrown for 4,000 yards. And yeah, sure, he's rushing for, uh, I believe it was in his rookie year, he only rushed for, I think it was about six, seven. I have to look at it. Um, yeah, so in rushing, he rushed for four touchdowns his rookie year. So you're talking about total of 28 productive touchdowns. And then in his sophomore season 11 touchdowns making it where hey you take a look at that season talk about production finishing with 35 touchdowns is a pretty good way to do it now in 2021 what ended up happening well his passing went up the cardinals were able to run the ball much more effectively by having some talent but then when they stagnated you got to see murray kind of go back to the same projection he had been last year he had went 24 touchdowns and of course ended up with that same old numbers of about 10 interceptions now what's fascinating at least about how all that went around is that entering this year kyler murray was able to get to 100 total touchdowns becoming one of the fastest players in the nfl to get to that level of that production now what's he on pace for this year on pace for 20 touchdowns just like his rookie year 12 interceptions just like his rookie year a few more yards, he's on pace for about 2,000 yards or so. But ultimately, you take a look at the last three years and say, unless you're able to see down the stretch that DeAndre Hopkins and Hollywood Brown is able to have a sizable impact on Murray, not just as necessarily a quarterback, but on seeing at least his level of production, if he's going to stay stagnant, then I think that you're basically going to end up forced into a corner. This is kind of the ugly. The ugly is then having to make a difficult decision between Cliff, between Kime, and between Kyler Murray. Because with Cliff and Kime, I think a lot of fans have wanted them moved out, but with just getting extensions, and with the fact that you're not seeing this necessarily be a Steve Wilkes type of spot, you're not seeing this be a Ken Wisenhunt, three lousy seasons in a row type of place. You're not seeing this as a Cardinals team that wants to fire head coaches after a single season. After giving an extension, they essentially moved on from Steve Wilkes, did not want to move on from Steve Kime. 
And with Kaiba, it feels like the question a lot of people have is, are the Cardinals going to be able to look at this balance of the three guys and be able to make it work? Because I think right now, if I had to guess, most of the emphasis is not going to be put onto Steve Kime as a talent level because people will look at the Cardinals team and say they have talent. They should be winning more games than having a projected 6-10 and 10 record the rest of the way. If they finish the season out, maybe you can get to seven wins, but ultimately underachieving is not what people expected for this year. And it's unfortunate that a lot of the injuries that have taken place have been the way that they are because I think that one of the biggest injuries that hasn't been talked about is Kyler Murray and his health because as we remember he came in with a wrist injury coming into the 2022 season and we've seen two things that have impacted one has been his deep accuracy has definitely gone down uh, he's passing it probably even his completion percentage is on track to be just barely higher than his rookie year at 66 percent he's normally been I think closer to about a 68 to 70 percent passer overall his yards per attempt are at the lowest that he's had in his career. He was throwing for seven yards per attempt in 2019 and 2021. That went up by an entire whole yard to one of the highest in the league. And now he's at one of the lowest in the league. You can see at least from the underthrown ball, he gets hit as he throws as part of it to Robbie Anderson. But it does feel like with Arizona that the ace in the hole at the head of his deep accuracy this year, it might just be gone. And I think that he's still struggling and wrestling with that wrist injury. And that really seems to make sense when you take a look at a lot of the Cardinals' problems this year. It really comes down to two things. One is the interior of the offensive line. They've got their starting left guard. Justin Pugh, whenever he's been out, they've really had a difficult time. And they don't have a starting center who's capable on the roster, which basically takes your right guard in Will Hernandez and takes kind of the strength that he was able to bring to those guys kind of tosses it out the door and Cardinals obviously have had issues like Hudson and Pew were barely healthy Pew and Hudson played a little bit at least I believe at the Raiders game you saw how they were essentially able to make do against the Panthers but I think it's come down to when the offensive line is banged up the quarterback is banged up and the running backs are not healthy and the second wide receiver who was your big play threat isn't healthy you're, you're gonna have a bad time it may look like a very ugly season as a result and what's tough is that it makes it hard to truly evaluate cliff and kind because if you just chalk up kyler murray's play and regression to the coach well you got to look at that injury if you're going to chalk up steve kime and the approach he took and say hey guys got hurt he brought talent in for the most part the cardinals have talent the coaching staff has got to make this work well you kind of can point the finger and then also at kyler murray saying we trusted and paid this guy to take that next step instead of taking the next step he's taken a step back and i don't know where this will all lead because I think right now, a lot of that depends on what Michael Bidwell's thinking in his head right now as far as it comes to the Cardinals and the direction of the team. Because I don't know if he's simply going to look at this season and say, all right, health is an issue. Let's improve the team, add some players, get back to it next year. Or if he's going to look at this and say, we trusted that we were on the right track, we're off track. And where will the blame be cast? Because right now, a lot of people have been very critical of the Cardinals coaching staff, particularly due to how, for one reason or another, we've seen the Cardinals be an average offensive unit under Cliff Kingsbury each of the last three years. They've finished around 15th, maybe at highest, I think it was 13th, and have not been able to truly evolve into that elite offensive unit. They've not been a top 10 offense. They at times have been top 10 in rushing. They at times have been a great passing offense. But the consistency has still been an issue for Arizona. And now instead of seeing that consistency 
uh, you know, be relegated to the first half of the season versus the second half. We've really seen it ultimately take place almost on a game-by-game level. And that's where I think at the end of the season, really I think the Cardinals need to show a second-half uh, revitalized team that can get Rodney Hudson back, that can get Hollywood Brown back and showcase that they can win some of those tough games and at least make it push for it for the season, if just to be able to justify the contracts that were given. Because if those contracts turn out to not be justified, the Cardinals end up landing somewhere along in the top 10 NFL picks. Right now, they're currently with the 11th pick in the draft. They end up in the top 10, and you're going to have a lot of questions about if we keep this coach, and we keep this GM, we keep this quarterback, and we come back, and we get off to another slow start, another bad start next year, then you're probably going to be looking at essentially being a team that waited a year too late to make a decision that was inevitable. Just like how the Carolina Panthers are back into the market, just like how they're out of place. And there'll be questions anew as far as if Kyler Murray will stick around or what kind of coach will want to come into a situation. If Michael Bidwell keeps Steve Kime, puts it on the coaching staff and decides to try to bring in another coach, but you know, God forbid that they end up cleaning house, getting some fresh uh, new people in there. Because that's what I think the Cardinals ultimately right now, they may have reached their peak in 2021. It may have been a little fluky. And I think that's something that fans have looked at. And I think that we all need to be looking at the second half of the season, which starts with Seattle. But first, before we get to that, let's talk about Patrick Peterson. That'll be here after this break on the Revenge of the Birds podcast. And welcome into the RTB pod. Uh, let's talk a little bit of Patrick Peterson's comments because I think a lot of Cardinals fans have put a lot of stake into them. And it continues the pattern of Peterson and others at least talking ultimately about the Cardinals organization. Peterson talks about that someone put a printoff for Michael Bidwell's email. Fan emails in, says they're not renewing season tickets. Patrick Peterson can't tackle. And it puts it on his chair. Now, to be fair... I don't think that this fan was wrong in what they did. I think that obviously the takeaway that many people have had was seeing Patrick Peterson sometimes, you know, not necessarily go after lower the shoulder and take down a running back or sometimes at least look to make a play on the ball versus being physical at the line with a receiver. We've seen him also drop a little bit of his skill set where now he's playing as much more of this cover two, uh, more of a zone safety corner versus that guy who can lock players up at the line of scrimmage. So I don't think that there was anything wrong that was said. Now, obviously, the methodology of being able to go straight with an email and complaining this to the owner, that's one of the things that can be very difficult because usually if a fan is someone sending something to the owner, the owner not only already knows, but it's already something that's been discussed and is in the building. It's like when you go to a drive-thru and you say, hey, none of these tables are clean. You know, I don't think that's news to a manager. A manager is going to be able to know because they're in charge of making sure those tables are clean. And they're probably either overwhelmed or busy or have been telling people that they need to be able to keep all those tables clean and it's not getting done. They are at least always more aware of stuff usually than you are. If there's going to be an issue or problem with the taste of the food, they know that the freezer's already been acting up every <laughs> once in a while. I think the question was always, hey, if this email made it to Patrick Peterson's chair, who did that? Why did this come around? What's the case? And I think what's interesting is that Patrick Peterson seemingly had two people that he was looking to blame. 
but only one of them did he actually. Because when you tell you that this is an email to Michael Bidwell that was sent on your desk, well, who's going to get that email? Michael Bidwell. If your owner is putting stuff on the chairs of a player, that's a pretty big deal. But the fact I think that's interesting is that Patrick Peterson didn't say he wanted to speak to Michael Bidwell after the game. He said he wanted to speak to Steve Kime. He said that Kime never called him back and was upset and frustrated, obviously, for how things went. I think Steve was frustrated with how Patrick went, too. I think the Cardinals went and looked and said, we're paying you $12 million guaranteed, paid this great contract for you. We want to try to be able to re-sign you. But, man, the six-game suspension, the lack of play when he came back, essentially having to kind of force him to prove it. And he ends up really showing that he's not a fit for the Cardinals moving forward. The way it's handled on the way out, however, we've heard from players like Tyron Matthew, like Rashad Johnson, like others, that Steve Kime is just a very brusque manner. Maybe some of that comes down to his perspective of, hey, if you're on the Cardinals and you're helping the Cardinals, he's your man. But if you're not on the Cardinals, he's not. Maybe some of it comes down to simply just relationship-wise. He sees the players as a product, himself as being over the players, not seeing it as something as necessarily as relatable. And I think that there's a lot of areas, at least as far as when it comes to it. We've seen even with DeAndre Hopkins and negotiations, Kime was very, very harsh to the point of where when it came down to contracts and dealing directly. He said that you want to make sure that it tries to not get personal because people are going to take it personal. And I don't think that Steve is necessarily the good guy in this situation, but I don't think he's the bad guy either. I think the other question you'd have with Patrick Peterson, at least, is looking at the time frame. Because when you talk about a player receiving something on their chair that was printed off from a motivational thing, that could very easily be from a coach. That could be from a coach standpoint. And without going too far into speculation, you wonder what year it happened. Because there's a very big difference, I think, if Patrick Peterson had that motivation placed on his chair in 2020. Then you're talking about a guy who's in his contract year trying to see if he can get an extension for the team, not putting together his full effort. Coach is trying to find a way to motivate him. Maybe the general manager trying to find a way to motivate him, put that old chip on the shoulder. This is in 2019. This is him coming off of a suspension in which he played poorly when he came back from the PED suspension, of which he tried to cover up and was caught. That puts it into another context as well. Then you're looking at a player who seemingly is having to be told, despite being able to come back from suspension, hey, your legacy's on the line here and you're not tackling, buddy. Like, there's all sorts of problems coming up. If it's at the Arians era, well, that's in, say, 2017. You're talking then about a guy like Bruce Arians basically throwing a guy under the bus. This is something that you normally would see Bruce do not to the player directly. You'd see him do it to the media or say it openly. That's who Bruce Arians was. So what kind of passive-aggressive type of tactic to motivate a player could have taken place? Maybe someone like Steve could have put on there. Maybe a different coach did. But it sounds an awfully lot like that could have been a Steve Wilkes type of move as well. Now, of course, Peterson didn't bring up Steve Wilkes. He praised Steve Wilkes entering the season. And halfway through, players were telling him, why are you playing all this zone coverage? You're a cover corner. You're not getting your hand on any picks, at least. This is not fitting your skill set. And maybe things changed a little bit for Patrick Peterson. Because if Steve Wilkes put that on his chair as a motivational tactic to try to get him to play the type of coverage he wanted to, a tackling coverage, guy who could at least get the hand on the ball, 
being able to keep those run fits in place, which is very important to the Steve Wilkes type of defense. And then you look at that that was the year, not 2019, not 2020, but 2018 was the year that Patrick Peterson asked for a trade. Things seem to click in a little bit more. And that also maybe explain why he doesn't say, where is Steve Wilkes? I want to say Steve Wilkes is no longer with the Cardinals, but Steve Kime still is. And so maybe that's where I think Patrick Peterson looks there and is able to place a little bit heap of the blame um, at the feet of the general manager versus the coach. Now, here's the other thing about Peterson. Cardinals played the Vikings last year. Some fans have pointed out Peterson spent all this time chirping. He did all the chirping on his podcast after a win. He did it in a season in which quarterbacks throwing at his side are having less than 50 quarterback rating. He did that during a good season. He didn't do it last year when he gets burned by the likes of DeAndre Hopkins for a touchdown. He didn't even go on to the side DeAndre Hopkins was. He took on A.J. Green and took on Robbie Anderson. And that ultimately, I think, at the end of the day shows this isn't necessarily a good guys or bad guys type of thing. This is a player, I think, who is still putting a little bit of that chip on his shoulder and has earned the right through their play to chirp back a little bit, just as I think you can say the Cardinals may have earned a little bit of that right to not necessarily give Patrick the contract to stay or retire with a team that he may have wanted, given that, hey, they decided to wait instead of paying him. They benefited for it by being able to move on versus tying themselves to that long-term deal. Let's wrap up and talk about the upcoming Seahawks game because this is a doozy. And this, I think, is, as people have said, you don't see must-win games in the NFL because there aren't very many games that are not must-win games. Now, sometimes you can see that the definition of a must-win game comes up after you lose a game because, you know, the thing is if you drop two games in the NFL, you're out of it pretty quick. Your goal is to be around a 500 team, and if you lose a game, your goal is then to go ahead and win a game that keeps you on track, keeps you on pace, keeps you at 500. And the Cardinals had that opportunity and lost it, so now they find themselves two games back of the Seattle Seahawks. And the Seahawks already have the tiebreaker, so this really puts you into sharp relief when you look at the Giants, the Cowboys, Eagles undefeated going into the season. You really have to wonder and say, is this season over if they lose to the Seahawks and fall to 3-6? and six. And I think the answer is technically no. But practically, yeah, outside of a miracle because the Cardinals at that point, you look at their season, in order to get to nine wins, they'd have to finish the stretch 6-3, and three, which would mean in order to finish 6-3 and three, and in order to make the playoffs, you're going to have to win at least a couple division games and maybe need help because if you lose this game to the Seahawks and you end up tied with Seattle with a 9-8 and eight record at the end of the year, guess who gets in? Seattle does and not you, buddy. That would also need to have some team like the Giants collapse and fall off. You'd need to have something similar to what the Cardinals collapsed and did last year where they needed a game to win to essentially make the playoffs, and they needed the Rams to beat an opponent for them to be able to get in. And when they needed a win to win the division, couldn't do it. They needed a win to make the playoffs in 2020. They couldn't do it. This team, when they've had their backs up against the wall and have had must-win games, has not come through. They've not come through in the clutch, and that is one of the cases, at least, that will be interesting to watch on Sunday. Now, practically... The Cardinals do end up losing on Sunday, fall to 3-6. and six. If they're able to turn it around, their record actually is very interesting the rest of the way. Because 
they still have to play the San Francisco 49ers twice. They play a beat-up Chargers team. They end up playing a Rams team that looks like they are going to finish with a 6-7 win type of a season because of, you know, and even if Odell Beckham Jr., their supported, supposed savior, walks through that door, that offensive line and running game is bad enough. You see a Patriots team that really looks like they're on the outs and maybe having to look for a new quarterback next season. A Broncos team that can't catch a break. <laughs> a Falcons team that has choked away as many games as they've actually been able to put up and win this year with a dominant rushing attack. And you've got a Buccaneers team that has just looked lost right now and unable to run the ball whatsoever. If you told me that the Cardinals could finish 6-3 and three with wins against the Rams, the Patriots, the Broncos, the Falcons, the Chargers, and they could steal one away from the Niners or the Bucks. I could 100% believe you. But what I could also 100% believe was that the Cardinals would be a 9-8 team that does not make the playoffs. And to me, I think that's where if the Cardinals lose this game, they're going to have to probably win the next two. Might be the Rams beat the Niners. It might even be the next three because then you'll be back at 6-6 six and six and have a shot to be able to get back in it. And I don't know if this Cardinals team is good enough to do that. The Cardinals are playing at home. They've had home losses throughout the different time periods. They've struggled to win at home. If the Seahawks go out and run the ball all over, are able to score touchdowns, put up points, and the Cardinals is, are not able to essentially go out there with a win, I think that we'll start seeing a lot of fans look at that as a potential turning point. Because the Cardinals will have to then show, I think, down the stretch that they're able to get back to a seven-win type of season, that they're able to finish with a couple wins. Because if Caleb Kingsbury turns into a second-half slide and suddenly we see the Cardinals lose to the Seahawks, they lose to the Rams. Suddenly you're looking at a team that now is 3-8, and eight, is playing the Niners, and you have to wonder, does Cliff Kingsbury come back from Mexico or does Arizona decide, we're not heading the right place with this coach. We'll give Vance Joseph and another play caller the chance to finish this out as a trial run and see how it goes. Maybe you do have to finish out the season just to see if everyone's tied together, but the Chargers have Justin Herbert. You've got Bill Belichick against it. Russell Wilson has always played you well. Tom Brady's on the schedule. The Falcons are in first place right now. And the San Francisco 49ers are a team that look like they want to make a Super Bowl push. Despite having Jimmy Garoppolo, despite having that 3-4 and four record, they've gone out and brutalized the Rams. You've not played them or Christian McCaffrey. You've played once. You've not played him on the 49ers. If the Cardinals end up falling to the Seahawks, they fall to the Rams, and they're not able to win against the 49ers, that 0-3 would mean that they all of a sudden have fallen to 0-5 in their division. And that was what caused Michael Bidwell to move on from Ken Wisenhunt when he said, hey, we've just been falling too far behind in our division. That was a year in which they essentially were completely destroyed by the likes of a Colin Kaepernick. Um, they were destroyed at least by... The Rams and the pass rushing game against Kevin Cobb, they were destroyed ultimately 58-0 by the Seahawks. At that point, you almost have to look at it and say, we've got no choice. And that was the same case for the Cardinals back in 2018 as well, because the Cardinals in 2018 had two wins against the 49ers in their division. But they only had one win against teams outside of it for the entire rest of the year. That being that Green Bay Packers win, and ultimately with the loss to a bad Lions team the next week, seemingly sealed Steve Wilkes' fate. And I think if the Cardinals do lose this game, then you'll have to be very closely paying attention to watching because that could seal Cliff Kingsbury's fate as well. Steve Kime, I do not know. 
I could see Michael Bidwell very easily saying that the problem isn't with the talent, it's with the coaching. Try to see if they can retool it. Because if he does decide to say, all right, we need to go out and get a good coach, that coach may want their own GM. As we saw with the Jacksonville Jaguars, a lot of owners are very hesitant to move on from a GM, fire everyone completely, bring in a new team, because at the end of the day, you still don't know how they'll do. At the end of the day, you may just be hiring the next Steve Welks and hire a general manager who makes a bunch of terrible moves. Suddenly you end up in a spot where you're suddenly looking at a team that has a decent quarterback but is jeopardizing thing again and again. And I think that's a spot where I could see them wanting a little bit of stability and consistency. could also see it simply being a spot where the general manager sees the team losing, sees the team going down at the very end and decides that it's time to pull the trigger while they have a quarterback that's probably able to land them a head coach, unlike the time in 2018 when they essentially had Sam Bradford and Mike Glennon on the roster. Let's wrap up and talk about the Seahawks-Cardinals game, how this matchup will go. Cardinals faced last time Kenneth Walker. They had a fantastic defensive game plan against Geno Smith. They limited DK Metcalf. They limited Tyler Lockett. And ultimately, the offense was not able to surpass the Seahawks, who went from being one of the worst defenses in the league to the last couple weeks playing pretty good defense. They started actually changing things around. They've promoted uh, Bruce Irvin to their roster, getting a veteran pass rusher in there. They've had better ability to ultimately sell out and stop the run in a much greater way than they had before. And so I think this is a matchup. That Arizona, while they are favored because they're at home, they're going to have to be essentially playing with passion because the Seahawks have a little bit of swagger and a bit of confidence. And if they come in and Geno Smith is able to get plays to DK Metcalf, if he's able to get plays to Tyler Lockett, if Kenneth Walker is able to rumble and run down and the Seahawks are able to pull away from Arizona, and there's a good argument right there that you know where this season's going to be heading because the Cardinals need to be the team that's more desperate. And we'll see how desperate they are because if they are able to see that desperation where they turn around and they beat Seattle, they at least are able to get talent back in the field, guys play well, suddenly you can see the picture. You can see a Cardinals team that's able to get a win against Seattle. You can see them taking it to a Rams team and getting revenge and splitting suddenly at 2-2 two and two with the NFC West before they have to play the San Francisco 49ers. Wow. That suddenly would put you back at 500 in the division with a shot, not just at being able to contend for the division, but you could potentially take a division lead that week and get to six and five. I think if the team is going to turn around for this season, it has to be here. Can this team turn it around against the Rams? Yeah, but uh, what are the odds? This team needs to come out on Sunday and play like this is going to be their last and only game of the season. Look at this as this is the time to go for a 1-0 record because if you get to 4-5 and five, playing a bad Rams team and you know that you've got the Niners coming up next, you go 2-1 and one down that stretch, you're still in it. You will have beaten two of the teams that are contending with you in that division. You will have at least been able to keep pace somewhat with the Seattle Seahawks. And uh, by the way, with those uh, Seattle Seahawks, if you take a look at their schedule coming up, <laughs> yeah, guess who they play? They play the Bucks, they play the Raiders, they play the Rams themselves, and the Panthers. The Seahawks' next four games, my goodness, they will get some of the weakest teams in the NFL this season. 
And then ultimately at the end of their season, well, they'll play at least the Rams again, but they've got another game against the 49ers, a game against the Kansas City Chiefs on Christmas Eve, and a game against the New York Jets, who have looked like a playoff team this year. It's not the easiest finish. But if you end up dropping this game, you may fall so far behind Seattle that it may not matter what you do with the rest of the season. And at that regard, you would ultimately look at that game in Seattle a couple weeks ago where you put up only one single field goal of offense and had to get the defensive touchdown just to make it a game and could say that their season ultimately just wasn't meant to be this year. So... Uh, talking a little bit more about the game, I've got a final score prediction. I've got this as a 31-22 Seahawks win. I think the Cardinals are capable of scoring more, but I think what may happen is if you look at the team's history of slow starts, Seahawks have been a fast-starting team. I think that you see the Seahawks flip their game plan a bit and are a bit more prepared for Arizona's defense this time around. I think Arizona has a good defense. Now, of course, they have DeAndre Hopkins back, and they also should probably have Matt Prater back as well this season. But you're going to be looking at, ultimately, a Seahawks team that knows that if they can essentially come out with a win, they'll put the Cardinals away, potentially for good this year, and will continue to have those bragging rights and being the best birds in the NFC West. I think that Arizona is going to be able to do stuff, but at home, they've really struggled against Seattle. Maybe things flip this year and Arizona's able to come out strong, but I got to still see it. Buda Baker might be out for this game. DJ Humphreys may be out for this game. James Conner may be out for this game. Rodney Hudson definitely out for this game. Hollywood Brown still out for this game. You looked it down the line, and the Seahawks just look like a team that's much healthier and much better on the offensive line, on the receiving position, on the running game and even on their defense, than Arizona is. I think that's what's going to give the Seahawks edge. Just as I thought last week, the biggest issue I think was the difference was Kirk Cousins himself had a couple of mistakes. Vikings offense suffered a little bit as far as in their typical second-half collapse, but not quite enough because the Cardinals just weren't quite good enough. And I think that's that consistently inconsistent type of play will show up where I think Arizona will be able to claw back into it after Seattle gets a 21 to seven type of lead. I could see Arizona getting it back to 21-14. Maybe then even getting it 21-17. to 17. And then I think at least that what ultimately happens is um, they kick another field goal. Makes it about, you know, 21-20. to 20, You're getting closer. And then the Seahawks, I think, at least will just make some sort of a play, be able to put it away, score a touchdown. Arizona comes back. Something at least happens where they're able to trade a bit of field goals. Um, Seahawks get another field goal to make it 31. Arizona drives down the field and is still ultimately down by nine points. Goes for two. Uh, I should say at least at one point it looks like they'll have to get a safety just for that math to work out. So assuming that they go for two and get it at one point would make some sense. But it just feels like this is a team that's not healthy enough to be able to be capable of overcoming the flaws that we've seen built in. And if they do come out and are able to essentially take it to the Seahawks, then that's the time where you take a look at that team and can, we can say one thing about them. If they can beat the Seahawks on Sunday and at least be respectable enough 
to kind of get to a seven-win season despite all those injuries, that's the type of resilience that this team would have shown where I think that you can at least say, all right, we had health issues, but the team didn't quit. They didn't give up. And we ultimately can at least feel that we may not be heading in the right direction, but we know that we're not heading in the wrong direction. I think that's what the Arizona Cardinals should look for on Sunday. Let's hope the Cardinals go out there and win. I do think that there are some areas they can try to see about they can exploit with their defensive matchups from last time. But again, this is a Seahawks team that seems to be far more confident. And this is a Cardinals team that at least seems to have been just as lost now as they were, unfortunately, uh, to begin the season. Albeit of a nice little reprieve against the Saints. We'll have to find out what they can do against the Seahawks on Sunday. Thanks again for tuning in. This has been the ROTB pod. Let's go Cards.